This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's estimated that C. difficile causes about a half million infections each year in the U.S., and one in six of those will have a recurrence within a couple months. Although C. difficile typically occurs following the use of antibiotics, it can also be spread from one individual to another, especially in hospitals and skilled nursing facilities. So what are the common symptoms of an infection with C. difficile and how do we test for it? How should an infection be treated and what do we do with patients who have one or more recurrences? These are all questions I'll be asking our guest, Dr. Sahil Khanna, a gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic as we discuss what's new with C. difficile. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Talks. Sahil, thank you for joining us today. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's start by having you describe who is at risk for acquiring C. difficile. We know that C. difficile is a disease entity of an altered or a dysbiotic gut microbiome. We've got a colon that's full of bacteria. Most people have anywhere between 500 and 2,000 bacterial species and 100 trillion bacteria in their colon. Any risk factor that decreases the variety and numbers of these bacteria can predispose one to C. difficile infection. With that context, people who are at risk of C. difficile infection, the ones have, who have received any kind of systemic antibiotics for any infection, including one dose of an antibiotic can lead to C. difficile infection. So antibiotic exposure is the biggest risk factor in terms of medications. People older than the age of 65 are at a higher risk of getting C. difficile infection. And then other risk factors such as being in a hospital, living in a nursing care facility, being exposed to people with C. difficile infection, as you mentioned, people who have cancer and are in immunosuppression, chemotherapy, chronic kidney disease, acid-reducing medications such as PPIs. These are all risk factors for C. difficile infection. The one thing that's changed recently in the last decade or so is that we're now seeing this infection not only in hospitals, but outside the hospitals and also in younger patients. So there's an entity known as community-acquired C. difficile infection, which comprises of about 40% of all C. difficile. And the average age of those patients are in their 40s. And about a fifth of them have not even received antibiotics. So the epidemiology has changed, but almost anybody, again, the biggest risk factor is antibiotic exposure. Now, you said something I had not heard before. So even one dose may put you at risk. Are those patients at, at greater risk as those we use long-term antibiotics for like when we treat prostatitis, they may be on an antibiotic for months. Are, are those individuals at greater risk than a short course? Absolutely. If you treat somebody with a longer course of antibiotics and with more broad spectrum antibiotics, the risk is higher than a shorter course of antibiotics and narrow spectrum antibiotics. So we do always recommend as general antibiotic stewards use narrow spectrum for the lowest duration of time. So there is that duration effect, but one needs to keep in mind that if somebody got a one-time dose of something, and if you're the perfect storm and you got exposed to C. difficile spore from somewhere, you could still get that infection. Okay. So I think you answered my next question. Broad spectrum antibiotics tend to be a, a greater risk than the narrow spectrum ones. The biggest one is clindamycin. 
that still unfortunately gets prescribed sometimes for skin and soft tissue infections or for dental work in patients who have some form of penicillin allergy. Most recent dental guidelines are not recommending using clindamycin, but we still see some clindamycin use. That's the biggest one out okay. there. Sahil, what are the most common symptoms of someone who acquires an infection with C. difficile? The most common symptom would be watery diarrhea or unformed stool. That's the most common symptom. Most people will have otherwise unexplained diarrhea, meaning you can't explain it something else. The stool's watery, runny, three or more times a day that typically lasts a day or so and longer than a day or so, I should say. And other symptoms are abdominal discomfort. And some people get other systemic symptoms like nausea, vomiting, inability to eat, fever, dehydration, tachycardia. Those things can also happen. The common ones, however, are diarrhea and abdominal pain. And what's the typical mechanism for how this organism is spread from uh, one person to another? Typical mechanism is fecal-oral and by in coming in contact with contaminated surfaces. We know that the C. difficile bacterium exists in two forms. There's a spore form and there's a vegetative form. The spore form is very hardy, so it can survive on surfaces for long, long periods of time. But the typical mechanism is fecal-oral. And in hospitals, we see that we could potentially spread that from one person to another. So we have those contact isolation precautions in hospitals where you got to gown up and glove up and do adequate hand washing after you've taken care of a patient with C. difficile infection. Okay. So let's say we have a patient we suspect may have C. difficile. Where do we start? What tests do we order first? And then where do we go from there? The first and the most important test is actually to obtain a history from a patient that you're suspecting C. difficile infection. And when I say take a history, one needs to elucidate all risk factors that the patient may have for C. difficile infection, and then take a very, very, very good diarrhea history because the tests in itself are only as good as the history or our pretest probability. So can't overemphasize the fact. I actually use the Bristol stool scale, this kind of a stool chart presented to the patients and say, what does your stool look like to make sure that I'm not dealing with multiple form stools a day, which do not warrant CDFCL testing. So the first test in my mind is risk factor assessment. Second test is an adequate, well done history. And then we talk about stool assays. There are more than one kind of stool assays that are out there and they're available. The most commonly used one is a polymerase chain reaction or a PCR-based assay that detects the presence of the toxin-producing organism. It does not detect actual toxin production. It does not detect if the organism is active or not. It detects the presence of the organism. And it has to be interpreted in context of symptoms. Otherwise, you could get false positives. That's the most commonly used test. There is another test called enzyme immunoassay, which is detection of the toxin that the bacterium produces. So C. difficile produces two toxins, toxin A and toxin B. EIA detects the toxin, but it's not a very sensitive test and can lead to missed cases. So we do these multi-step algorithms where we start with something called a glutamate dehydrogenase, followed that by enzyme immunoassay for the toxin. So it's a two-step assay. If both of those tests are concordant, meaning both are positive or abnormal, you diagnose C. difficile. If both are negative, you refute C. difficile. And sometimes you get a discordant assay. One's positive, one's negative. Then you can arbitrate that with a PCR. 
So in essence, there's two ways of diagnosing CDFCL in terms of stool tests, just the PCR assay, which detects the organism, and you have to put that in context of symptoms, or the multi-step assay, which is also available in certain laboratories. Okay. So can an individual have colonization with C. difficile without actually having a clinical infection? Yes, individuals can be colonized, and that's where we have to interpret these tests really, really in context of symptoms. Studies have estimated that up to 3% of the general population could be colonized. And if we look at hospitalized patients who may have recently received antibiotics but are not actively infected, meaning are not having diarrhea, up to 20 to 25% could be colonized in hospitals. So we have to be really stewards of those tests. And why is that so? More than one study now has shown that if you take a bunch of colonized patients who have CDFCL test that's positive, but they are not actively having infection, meaning no diarrhea, and you treat them with an antibiotic, you actually don't do any good to them compared to placebo. If you give them vancomycin now, they're more likely to get CDFCL infection in the future. So you make them worse. So it's very, very important that you detect potential colonization just based on your history and your risk factor assessment so that you don't test somebody who otherwise may not have the active infection. And I would imagine that those who are colonized can still spread the infection, even if they don't have active infection in themselves. Is that correct? That's a gray zone in the medical literature. You bring up a very, very good question that I wish I knew the exact answer to because we haven't studied it. But a lot of studies back in the day have shown that if you're not having active diarrhea, your spore shedding rate is very, very, very low. So you probably are not spreading it to others. But if you come across somebody whom you've diagnosed colonization, you should always then practice infection control to make sure that you're not inadvertently spreading something that you shouldn't be spreading. But if you're not having diarrhea, your risk of transmitting this to somebody else is, is close to zero. Okay. Well, this isn't a completely benign disease. It doesn't just cause a little bit of diarrhea. What are, what are the potential complications of C. difficile? It's not a benign disease. And thankfully, the majority of patients do not get the complications, but some do. And we divide C. difficile in our minds as somebody having mild to moderate disease, severe disease, or fulminant disease. Severe disease is defined by having acute kidney injury, meaning your creatinine goes up 1.5 times baseline or more than 1.5 milligrams per deciliter, or having a severe leukemoid reaction where white blood cell count goes up more than 15,000. And this is associated with bad outcomes later on. So that's severe infection. People who have severe infection tend to get dehydrated, tachycardic, sometimes hypotensive, and a lot of them need hospital admission. And then there is a smaller group of patients who get what we call as fulminant infection. Those are people who have other comorbid conditions, meaning they may have heart disease, lung disease, cancer, chemotherapy, maybe older than the age of 80. And these are patients who unfortunately end up in the intensive care unit, sometimes with septic shock, sometimes with a toxic megacolon, and a lot of times with a very, very high mortality in this patient population a lot of times needing surgery or experimental therapies. It happens, it's rare, it's not the common thing. And we have now become smarter in our management of C. difficile that we can recognize disease early, tests come back fairly quickly, you start treatment, hopefully potentially avoid these complications. Okay. Well, let's talk about management. Uh, let's say we have a patient, we've confirmed C. difficile. What do we use for the initial treatment? This has changed. 
there has been three new guidelines that have come out in the last couple of years regarding management of C. difficile. When I went to medical school back in the day, only a couple of years ago, we used to say metronidazole is the first line treatment for C. difficile infection. One needs to remember one, not only metronidazole doesn't work as well, it causes more adverse events and it's actually not an FDA approved therapy for C. difficile infection. Putting all of that together, we're no longer recommending metronidazole for management of C. difficile in the outpatient setting or even in the hospital setting, except in the ICU, and we'll talk about that. So metronidazole is no longer the first-line treatment. The first-line treatment for the first, very first episode is a course of vancomycin for 10 days or fidaxomycin for 10 days. Now, there are two different drugs. There's a big difference between both of them. Vancomycin is four times a day. Fidaxomycin is twice a day, so it's easier to take. They both lead to similar cures when you're taking it, but fidaxomycin leads to fewer recurrences compared to vancomycin, as fidaxomycin is not that much of a broad-spectrum killer, does not wipe out the rest of the microbiome in the gut. The trouble with fidaxomycin is it's pricier than vancomycin, so one needs to make sure that insurance covers it and also do a pharmacoeconomic analysis for that patient that you're prescribing it to. The American College of Gastroenterology says use vancomycin or fidaxomycin, and the Infectious Diseases Society of America or the IDSA guidelines prefer the use of fidaxomycin over vancomycin because of the recurrence prevention benefit. And there are some patient assistance programs that are out there that are available for fidaxomycin coverage. Okay. So that's the first infection. One of the problems with C. difficile is the frequent recurrences. So what do we do when a patient has a recurrence? What what do we treat them with? When I speak to any patient with C. difficile infection, I talk to them about there are two goals to treat C. difficile infection. Treat the active acute episode and then figure out a way to prevent the next episode from coming back or having a recurrence prevention strategy. After a first infection, roughly about 20%, give or take, will get the infection back. In that situation, you've got these options. You can use fidaxomycin if you didn't use it up front. And there's a longer regimen of fidaxomycin known as the fidaxomycin extend regimen, where you use the same number of pills spread over 25 days. And we've written and published about it. It's in clinical trial data. If somebody's interested in knowing the regimen, it's 200 milligrams twice a day for five days, skip day six, and then 200 milligrams once every other day from day seven through 25, total of 20 doses. That leads to very small number of recurrences. So you can use that for the first recurrence. You can also use a vancomycin taper and pulse regimen. We used to previously say that use a long vancomycin taper for three or more episodes. Now we're saying use it early on. There are many of them out there. The way I use that is I use it for four times a day for two weeks, twice a day for a week, once a day for a week, once every other day for eight days, and once every third day for 15 days. And this pulsing at the end, where you're skipping days in between, that actually has been shown to be much better than using just a taper. And for anybody who was following on the math, this particular regimen is 86 doses. So you can put that in your EMR and save it as a, as a favorite if you want to use vancomycin, taper, and pulse. But that's the kind of regimen that we use. Now okay. that's the antibiotics. Yep. You can also bolster, bolster the body's immune system to fight against C. difficile and reduce recurrences. We form an immune response against the toxins and a large clinical development program showed that if you passively immunize with a monoclonal antibody against the toxin B, 
C-Rifsil makes two toxins, A and B. And the monoclonal antibody against toxin B is known as, as bezlotoximab. The commercial name is Zenflava. It's a one-time IV dose given at the same time as the antibiotic that you're treating with. So this does not treat active C. difficile, but prevents the next episode from coming back. And it's more beneficial in people who have one of those high risk factors, either age over 65 or a recent C. difficile in the last six months or immunocompromised or having severe infection. If you have one or more of these risk factors, you actually get a recurrence prevention benefit with bezlotoximab. The only contraindication to bezlotoximab is heart failure as it can exacerbate heart failure. Otherwise, it's available. Now, that's the second episode. Unfortunately, Daryl, as you said, some people get multiple recurrent C. difficile infection. And in that respect, we use something called fecal microbiota transplantation or FMT, which is an experimental therapy, which has been shown to be about 90% effective to prevent C. difficile infection from happening again. Fascinating. All right. Well, because of the high recurrence rate, should we be retesting these individuals following either their initial treatment or if they have a recurrence, their subsequent treatment? We should only retest people who have active symptoms come back. If somebody has resolved their symptoms, we recommend not testing them because there is a risk of false positives or colonization after the infection is gone and up to 30% of people can have a false positive and then you get stuck with a false positive test. So we highly recommend not to test in that situation. Okay. Well, how can we reduce the risk of patients acquiring C. difficile? We gotta be great stewards of antibiotics. That's the most important principle. Beyond that, things that are in our hands are trying to use as much as infection control we can use in healthcare settings, hand washing, somebody's in the hospital, you make sure that you have isolation precautions on there. And then one study from Mayo Clinic a few years ago demonstrated that you got to clean the room with bleach-based solutions at when a patient discharges from a hospital room to prevent that from C. difficile spread from happening. Okay. As I was reading about C. difficile in preparation for this, um, I came across uh, a little bit on probiotics. And, you know, one would think that it would make sense to repopulate the gut with a probiotic following antibiotics. But uh, what I was reading said that's not such a good idea. Can, can you expand on that? The probiotic industry has been going on for several decades. There may be some health benefits of probiotics, some may be debatable, but the one that we've learned over the years is they don't have a real role in management of C. difficile infection. That's because most probiotics would have eight, 10 strains. Most would have several billion bacteria. The human gut in itself has around a thousand strains, around a hundred trillion bacteria, so you can't really replace. And the majority of what we carry in our gut, you can't actually grow them in a lab itself. So probiotics don't have much of a role. There have been a lot of meta-analyses that have been done and the number needed to treat, meaning you gotta treat 39 patients to get benefit in one and you have no idea which one to use. Is one better than the other? 
for one person or the other. So in our experience, in my clinical practice, I don't usually recommend the use of probiotics. I do recommend people taking some thing called as prebiotics, not like the fancy prebiotics in a, in a packet or the shelf, but things that actually feed good bacteria, high fiber diet, fruits, vegetables, salads, stuff like that. Prebiotics probably are a little bit more beneficial, but there is not an absolute risk reduction that we have seen with probiotics or prebiotics. That's just more of a general health advice. Okay. So there is some role for diet in terms of uh, preventing infection then? A little bit. I think the data are mixed. There was a study done in animal models from Baylor a few years ago that demonstrated if you use trehalose, which is an artificial sugar that is a sugar that's a food stabilizer made presenting a lot of packaged foods. So if you buy dried canberries and it says added sugar, it may actually be trehalose because that's what they use. And the trouble with that is it may reduce the risk of recurrence in the animal model. But all that said and done, we don't really have a good dietary advice. All I recommend people is that if you have serious seed infection, worried about it, try to avoid things that have added sugars in them. Try to avoid um, things that have antibiotics, of course, like prescriptions. But in terms of diet, the advice that I give people is things, if they're able to tolerate, eat a high-fiber diet that is rich in, rich in fruits and vegetables and try to shy away from the standard American diet that's full of sugar and fat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, you've given us several new pieces of information about C. difficile. Is there anything else new out there, either in prevention, detection, or treatment, or anything you see in the future? There's actually a lot of new stuff. I'm so glad that you asked that. I briefly alluded to this concept of fecal microbiota transplantation or FMT for C. difficile. It's somewhat of a new therapy. It's been out there for about a decade or so. We've been doing that therapy at all of the Mayo Clinic sites for about 10 years or so. Fecal transplantation works on the concept of acquiring donor stool from a healthy well-screened donor and then implanting filtered stool full of bacteria into a person who has C. difficile infection, usually using a colonoscopic approach. It's fairly involved invasive procedure and also is not an FDA approved procedure. It's done under FDA's enforcement discretion. It has its own challenges. It's 90% effective, but it's hard to find a donor who doesn't have microbiome associated diseases. It's hard to recruit people to be donors and you need to screen donors for like 30 different pathogens. So there, and it's not a standardized treatment. So it really has begged for standardization over the last decade or so. And to put all of that together, there have been multiple, I would say companies who have been interested in developing standardized microbiota based products there are capsule-based products and there are products that are rectally administered or similar to giving somebody an enema that's derived from human stool and is full of bacteria. And at least two of them have finished now phase three clinical trials. One of them is already FDA approved and as of this week is commercially available to prescribe or to administer to patients. And one of them would hopefully be approved uh, this year. It's in under FDA review. They've shown positive data and these are non-invasive methods. So compared to doing traditional fecal transplantation, these would not require anesthesia, sedation, colonoscopy, all of those things that come with a colonoscopic administration. The one that's approved this week is a product called LiveGSLM. Those are just acronyms that the FDA uses, but the brand name is Rebiota. 
it's a rectal administration or an enema-based, office-based uh, product that can be administered to somebody in the office itself, takes only a few minutes, and you alleviate CDC infection. Now, all of these products, they don't treat active infection. They treat or prevent the next episode from coming back. So really, really exciting time for CDC infection where we may have not one, but two very first in human microbiome-based therapies approved. Well, Sahil, this has been a fascinating discussion. Can you summarize what we've talked about? Maybe give two or three key points. My first and most important key point is in order to make a diagnosis of CDFC infection, don't shortchange on the risk factors and inadequate history. Otherwise, interpretation of tests become impossible and one could do more patient harm than benefit. My second take-home point would be metronidazole is no longer the first-line treatment for CDFC infection. It only has a role in the ICU patient with, with an, in an IV form. Otherwise, it has no role in the outpatient setting or the regular hospital setting. One should use fidaxomycin if available and if insurance covers or vancomycin for first-line treatment. There is bezlotuximab now available for recurrence prevention. And then finally, think about the microbiome. Think about the microbiome because that's the pathophysiology of CDFC infection. And fecal transplantation helps. And now we're at the point of using standardized microbiome-based therapies one of them's FDA approved and available. One of them hopefully will be FDA approved in the near future. And I'll add two more. Use antibiotics judiciously and wash your hands. I completely agree with that. Thank you. So we've been discussing what's new with C. difficile with Dr. Sahil Khanna, a gastroenterologist from the Mayo Clinic. Sahil, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your knowledge with us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.